Church, let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in Luke chapter 7. Our passage today is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. The gospel according to Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. With God's help, if you would turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of his word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now church, consider this with me. If you weren't already familiar with this passage, and I were just to lift the question that we find in verse 19 from its surrounding context, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to look for another? How many of us would ever guess that a question like that would come from the lips of a man like John the Baptist? How many of us would expect something like that to come out of the mouth of the forerunner of the Messiah? Surely we'd think, well, someone in the crowd might ask a question like that, but John? John the Baptist, it almost leaves you scratching your head. In fact, so much so that some people have tried to explain this away. Uh, some, some authors and commentators throughout the centuries have said, well, it wasn't really John uh, who had the question. Really, he was just, he was sending his disciples out to ask a question. He wanted to give them an opportunity to, to see their, their faith strength, strengthened, but he didn't really have any questions of his own. Well, the text doesn't bear that out. 
The, the text does not bear that line of reasoning out. John is the one who sends the messengers. He's the one asking the question. And Jesus sends the messengers back to John. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So John is the one that's at the center of attention throughout much of the story. Now, before we get there, I want you to just consider the man as we know him uh, thus far. If we had to reach for someone who is living at this time, someone that could serve as a stalwart of the faith, John is the kind of man you'd be looking for. John is just the kind of man uh, that would spring to mind. And indeed, many people did look to him as that kind of man, as a shining example of devotion and uh, steadfast uh, love to, toward the purposes of God. He had radical allegiance. He was a man of radical surrender. You remember he lived out in the wilderness. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was bold. He didn't pull any punches when he was preaching. He was a, a, a no-holds-barred kind of preacher. And at the same time, he was also a humble man. Uh, you remember how he, he had already made this confession at this point. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John is a man... Who, who he doesn't have any doubt as to the certainty of God's promise. He knows that there's one coming after him, someone who's greater than him, someone who is mightier than him. But he's looking at Jesus of Nazareth and he's wondering, is this really the one the prophets have spoken of, and even the one that I have spoken of? Is this the one that our hearts have longed for uh, for so long? Now, where did a question like that come from? I want you to think about the predicament that John found himself in as he uttered these words. Now, you'll remember John has been locked up in prison since the middle of chapter 3. Uh, where he was arrested. He was arrested by, by Herod the Tetrarch. You remember how John the Baptist, in his uh, courage and boldness uh, toward the purposes of the Lord and as a man uh, representing, the right, representing the righteousness of God, had gone to Herod and, and rebuked Herod for having his brother's wife. He had rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, the king, for all the evil things that he had done. And now what happened? Well, he was suffering the consequences of it. He found himself locked up. He was down there in Herod's dungeon, in, in, the, in the prison. Now, in the meantime, he is hearing about Christ's work. He's getting reports back about Jesus' ministry and all the miraculous things that the Son of God is, is doing out in the world. If you look at verse 18 in your Bible, it says that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now that has in view, at bare minimum, the two episodes that we see uh, immediately preceding this uh, interaction, this exchange in chapter 7. Uh, the healing of the centurion servant. We looked at that last week. The raising of, uh, of, of the widow's son to new life. Now, th this expression, all of these things, all these things that were reported back to John, really gives you the suggestion that there were many more things uh, that Jesus had been doing that came to John's attention. So just picture this. John is sitting there in chains. His disciples come and vi visit him and they say, get a load of this. Jesus is blessing people wherever he goes. He is out there showing compassion to everyone he encounters. He's ministering to anyone that comes to him, even going so far as to showing kindness to one of Herod's lackeys, the centurion. 
And here John is, rotting away in prison. And in John's mind, things just don't seem to add up. Jesus is supposed to be the one, uh, John himself said, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that word fire uh, carries with it a picture of judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John said, even now, uh, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, to the, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Where's the unquenchable fire? Where's the judgment that this promised one was to bring? Later in the passage, uh, Jesus quotes from Malachi chapter 3, where it talks about uh, John the Baptist, where it talks about the messenger of the Lord who would come and make ready the way before the Messiah. Well, right after that, in the very same breath, it says that when the Messiah comes, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And no doubt, John has all of this sweeping through his mind. Where is this great liberator and judge? I'm sitting here in prison. Things aren't going at all like what I expected they would be. So you see the heart of things. You've got all of these things. Uh, Jesus had wrought on one hand works of mercy and compassion and kindness and love. And then on the other, you've got John's own situation. And that begins to prompt this question in his heart. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one who is to come? It gets right down to the very core of Jesus's identity. But I want you to just mark in your minds where this question arises from, it arises from John's heart and mind wrestling with this apparent contradiction between what he understands to be true of Jesus Christ and what his experience is telling him. His knowledge of Christ and his experience seem to be in conflict with one another. And that leads to this crisis of faith. It leads to these questions that arise in his heart. Now, beloved, this is very helpful. It's very instructive for us as the people of God, as people who know Christ, who love him, who want to walk with him, who want to live for him, because this is not an unfamiliar experience. This is not an unfamiliar experience for many of us to walk through a crisis of faith. I think John's experience is something that, that resonates immediately with many of us if we will look at what's happening here. We all know what it is to have our faith tested, uh, to have it tried. God promised that it would be this way, that there are various trials he employs to bring about what? The tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He says that one day it'll be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But you and I both know that in the midst of those trials, when you're walking through the thick of it, Things aren't always so clear. You don't always see those ultimate purposes, those ultimate good divine purposes as clearly as you do when you're looking from the outside, looking in. We're often assailed when we're in the middle of it by doubt and by fear. We're, we're assailed by questions. We are surprised at the fiery trial, uh, when it comes upon us to test us. We do think it strange that we should share in Christ's sufferings. We don't find ourselves rejoicing as we wait for his glory to be revealed. And in that way, trials have a way of, of revealing and exposing the weakness of our faith, uh, the smallness of our faith. 
Well, it's for that reason it is so helpful uh, to have a case like John's set before us. Uh, something where we can, we can be outside observers and we, we, can, we can see the dynamics that are play, something that are common to all of the people of God, that if you were a Christian, you were going to walk through something like this at some point in your life, and we can see what kinds of lessons and, and applications it holds for us. So look at it with me, if you will. First, we see the imperfections and limitations of our understanding the imperfections and limitations of our understanding. This is a a simple observation, but it has profound implications in terms of the way we live. Think about John. He was a prophet. His words are inscribed here in holy writ, but the fact that John was a a prophet, the fact that the words uh, of his that we have indelibly inscribed in scripture were given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that John understood the totality of how what God had spoken through him were going to be worked out in the history of redemption. Isn't that remarkable to consider? Even John didn't understand the totality of what God was doing. And he spoke scripture. There was so much that had been revealed through him about the person and uh, the ministry of the Messiah, the judgment uh, that he would indeed bring to the world, but John didn't have a full understanding of how that was going to get worked out, how it was going to find its fulfillment in redemptive history. Brothers and sisters, neither do we. We do not have a full understanding of all that God is doing in the world. We have the truth as it has been delivered to us, but we have not yet gotten to the bottom of it, as it were. We have not yet sounded its depths. We haven't plumbed all that there is to plumb in terms of what can be mined from the truth of God's word. And there was more of Christ for John to be had. There was a deeper knowledge of the Lord Jesus for him to possess. Well, church, inasmuch as we don't see everything as clearly as we would like to see, that demands of us a greater trust in the Lord. John did need to come to understand uh, a greater sense of fullness of Christ uh, he needed to have his, his heart and mind awakened to what God was doing. But in the meantime, uh, what did that require? What did that uh, demand of John? It required that he be prepared to wait. That he be prepared uh, to trust and to rest his soul in the Lord. This is one of those, those questions that the passage brings to our attention. When you reach the limit of your understanding or of who God is or of what the working of his ways uh, looks like in your life, what do you do? What do you do in that moment uh, when, when you exhaust your, your finite knowledge And perhaps you find that in that moment, your faith begins to sag. What do you do? John has questions. He does. But there are two ways that you can go about asking questions. Uh, The first is to bring um, questions in a kind of sinful, uh, frustrated way uh, to the Lord, to demand questions of the living God. There's a period of time uh, in Job's life uh, where he slipped into this way of uh, questioning. Uh, He said uh, many things to the Lord and began to impugn the Lord's ways and by implication the Lord's character. And God said this to him. He said, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job had to repent in that moment. He said this, Behold, I am of small account, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So there, there is the way a, a sinfully frustrated soul demands questions of God. And then there's the way John comes. In the sincerity of faith, however faint and small your faith may be in that moment, you don't come demanding questions, you don't come uh, putting God in the wrong, but you come humbly seeking God. You come humbly seeking the face of the one who delights to make himself known to the humble inquirer, to the one who bows his knee and says, God, would you show me yourself? In your word, would you make yourself known to me? I can't make sense out of things. I I can't make sense out of my life. Would you help me? Would you show yourself to me? There are limitations to our understanding. There's also just the, the reality of doubt. I think there's some encouragement to be found here in this text and that even a man like John the Baptist took time to come to this fuller understanding of who Christ was. He had struggles, he had doubts along the way. Let that be an encouragement to you today. If you're not a Christian here today, let that be an encouragement to your heart. Maybe you uh, haven't professed faith in Christ. You haven't been baptized yet. You're uh, wrestling through things. Maybe there's some things you understand you believe to be true about who Jesus is, but you don't have everything worked out. Follow John's model here. John has struggles. Uh, He has questions. He's still wrestling through things. But notice this, the key thing that distinguishes him, the thing that distinguishes him from men like the Pharisees and lawyers who uh, reject Jesus out of hand is that he moves toward Christ. He moves toward the Lord Jesus and he brings his questions and he asks them of the Messiah. Now the same is true if you're a Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, but maybe you you do find yourself uh, plagued by doubts. You find yourself assailed by, by fears and questions and all of these other things. Not everything to you is as cut and dry as it seems to be to other people. First of all, I would say, don't, don't think that everything's as cut and dry to everyone else. And this is something that we need to uh, grow in as the body of Christ. This is something that we need to be prepared to, to open up our hearts about as the people of God to say, you know, Uh, I am wrestling through some doubts and struggles. I have questions to come alongside others and say, have you ever wrestled through the kinds of things that John the Baptist wrestled through? Can Can we talk about that? Can we go to God's word and see if there are answers to be found there? There's a, there's a short little verse toward the end of the book of Jude where he is giving his closing exhortations to the church. And it says this, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Be patient with them. Be gentle. Be merciful. And that tells me that God expects the church to be a place where we are free to voice our struggles and our doubts and expect to find other people who will come alongside us and help us in our weakness as we move closer to Christ. So if you find yourself, whoever you are, wrestling through doubts, consider that a man, even like John the Baptist, was still working things out. This is a man who had already cried, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had already made that confession. It's the same man who had doubts and fears, questions. Now I just... I, I labor that point because there are some who think that you, you can't be a real que- uh, Christian and, ev- and, and, and ever have doubt, ever have a question, 
That's not true. Don't believe that. Faith has its, its fainting fits. Some of the old uh, Puritans used to describe it as faint, the fainting fits of faith. But what do you do in that kind of hour? John shows us the way. You go to Christ. You run to him. Now, John couldn't go physically to Christ, but he did the next best thing. Uh, he sent two of his uh, disciples in his place. He says, here are my questions. Go, uh, report back to me. And they do that very thing. Two of his disciples go to Jesus. What do we find of Christ? What's Jesus' answer? Look at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Now, brothers and sisters, verse 29 is not a, an, oh, and by the way, here were some of the things that Jesus w- was doing when, John came, or when John's disciples came and asked the questions that, that John had. No. Luke is not just mentioning this in passing. It's at the very moment that John questions the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ that Luke records this, in that hour, Jesus ministered in this way. In other words, John's got questions. Jesus responds by saying, come and see. It's as if he is saying, here's your answer. Look at my ministry. Listen to my teaching. Come, investigate investigate who I am. And he continues in this ministry he's already been about, and then he underscores it with a message for John. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news." preached to them. The gospel is preached to the poor. That is the ultimate statement there. That is the capstone to everything else that precedes it. This is the answer to John's question. It's a word of comfort and assurance to John. Isn't the Lord Jesus Christ gracious with those who come to him? Isn't he gracious with those who have questions of him? Isn't he gentle with the inquiring soul? Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so Jesus, in verse 22, he pulls from a whole bunch of messianic passages, uh, especially from the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. But he does something strategic Uh, as he does. He leaves out, uh, for the time being, the emphasis on judgment that will come at the second advent of Christ. Now again, mainly this comes from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. There it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Why does Jesus draw from this? Why does the Lord quote from this passage? It's as if he is saying to John, can't you see? Yes, you may be in prison. Yes, you may be in prison. And Herod's dungeon, but the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is at hand. God is fulfilling his good and gracious purposes. God is fulfilling his word. The hope that God's people have looked for for so long has come in to the world. And while doing so, he's also correcting a misunderstanding on the part of John in terms of what the Old Testament had to say. You know, John is looking for fire and brimstone. But what does the Bible say? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. Christ came in the incarnation to save, to rescue men from the penalty of sin, from the guilt 
of, of our own sin. Christ came to preach the good news of the gospel to the poor, Jesus said, to those who are spiritually bankrupt, to those who have nothing to offer to God, nothing that they can do to, to earn their way into his good graces, no good works, no deeds of, of righteousness, just the empty hands of faith. And it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, there will be a day of judgment. Wrath is coming. There will, there will be a day, a day for that. But John, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of mercy and compassion. So why do we have crises of faith? Why do we find our, our faith faltering at times? Is it not because we often do, uh, just like John, and we take our lives, we take our experiences, we take the, the circumstances we find ourselves in, and we hold them up to just a tiny sliver of what God is doing in the world. Uh, we, we find a verse in the scripture that scratches where we itch, and we want to see that realized in our lives. We ignore the rest of what God is accomplishing in our affliction or the faith that he is proving by our sufferings. And sometimes we come out thinking, well, God isn't holding up his end of the deal, but God is gracious. He is patient. In the same way that John draws near to Christ, Christ draws near to John. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And then he pronounces this other uh, beatitude, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Not your typical beatitude. Uh, not your typical pronouncement of blessing. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word offended means to trip up. That's where we get our English uh, derivative scandalize. Happy is the one who doesn't stumble at these amazing mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, which raises the question for us, why would that be the case? Why would anyone be offended at Jesus Christ? Why would someone take offense at, at someone who goes around blessing others, healing, cleansing, raising the dead, preaching good news? Well, beloved, let me ask you this. Do you need raising from the dead? Do you need cleansing? Do you need the tender mercies of our God? Do you need to be washed? Do you need a savior? Do you need someone that can rescue you from the guilt of your sin and the penalty that you deserve? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus says. Or do you consider yourself to be a good, a moral person? There are many people in the world uh, today who prefer to think of themselves and as a, kind of as what you would describe as pious pagans. Uh, they're good people. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. They are offended by the idea that someone should actually have to come and suffer and die on account of their lawlessness. Now, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah and describes Christ as the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus says, happy is the one who, who receives the whole Christ, not a Jesus of your own imagination or Jesus as you would like him to be, but Jesus as he really is. Jesus as he has revealed himself in scripture. This is the crux of the matter. Who do you understand Christ to be? This is a call to faith, church. When Jesus says these words, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he is issuing a call to faith to everyone who hears those words, to receive him as he has revealed himself to be, as he truly is. Now, if you look at verse 24, uh, Jesus turns to the crowds and he says, well, what about you? The Bible says that he spoke uh, concerning John. 
He uses John as an illustration of this same kind of call to faith, a picture of the the watershed effect uh, that the self-revelation of God has in the hearts of men. What I mean is, is this. Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And then he goes on and he shows both offense and embrace in action. Rejection and reception. You have the response both of folly and of wisdom. And he, re- he reflects back on John's ministry first. Masses of people had gone out into the wilderness uh, to, to see him, but why? He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Something that would just bend and bow according to whatever the prevailing winds were? Well, of course not. That's not the kind of man John was. John spoke the truth. He told it like it was. John, of all people, wasn't wishy-washy. He didn't bend and bow. He was a man of courage and conviction. He liked to start his sermons by saying things like this, you brood of vipers, okay? That's the kind of man John was. You'd never catch him uh, reading the wind and adjusting his message according to whoever happened to be there that day. What did, what did you go out then to, to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No, uh, you know where to go if you're looking for that sort of thing. Those kinds of men that wear luxurious garments, they, they dwell in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. Now, why was John more than a prophet? Jesus answers that in verse 27. He says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Again, this comes from Malachi chapter 3. In context, this is where you have uh, the people of God making their accusations against the Lord, their grumblings and their complainings against Yahweh and they say things like this, where's the God of justice? When is he going to come? And the Lord promises this. He says, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, here he is. Here you have the the second Elijah, John the Baptist, come to make ready the way of the Lord, come to prepare the hearts of men and women with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So in that way, he is more than a prophet. You got more than you bargained for if you went out to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. In fact, he says something remarkable here about him. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's a tremendous statement. When you reckon up everyone that preceded him, you think of men like Moses and uh, King David and Solomon and Elijah, none of them, none of them are greater than John the Baptist. This locust-eating peasant is greater than them. But then he goes on, verse 28, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. None is greater than John the Baptist except the ones who are. Except the ones who are. What's the point? The kingdom of God is the distinguishing mark here. When it comes to the kingdom of God, this new era that has been inaugurated in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very least will be regarded the greatest. We're looking at the hinge point of redemptive history. It's the difference between promise under the old covenant and fulfillment in the new. The point is not to denigrate John. It's not to lessen his significance in the history of redemption, but but to draw a contrast between those born of women, those that came before Christ, and those born from above. 
Jesus is saying that those who have embraced the gospel, who have come to know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in this new covenant era, however small they are, brothers and sisters, however insignificant you are, are greater than the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the humblest, weakest, most unimpressible, unimpressive soul has more light, has more understanding on this side of the cross than John the Baptist ever did. Later in Luke, Jesus tells his disciples this, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's us too, church. That's us. When the, when the sun of righteousness has dawned, no one walks around with a candle anymore. You don't need to do that. The fullness of God's revelation has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed Peter says, the righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in him. He has died a sinner's death. He has been raised for us. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He always lives to make intercession for us. We have one who, who bears the likeness of sinful men, yet without sin, always beckoning us to come to the throne of grace. We know what it means to live in the victory of his resurrection. We have the hope of eternal life. We have that understanding, the blessed hope, in a way that the Old Testament saints never began to understand. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, church, Jesus isn't just interested in uh, calling our attention to this contrast, uh, to, 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 to showing, well, the greatness of our position relative to John's is this. No, he is calling us to respond. He is calling us to enter by faith into that good news, to enter in to the kingdom of God. He goes on. He continues to do that. He, he calls our attention to another contrast. He, he, he shows the response to John's ministry. Jesus talks about uh, John the Baptist and those in the kingdom, he, that, that contrast. And then we come to verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, and all the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now again, there, there, you may see a parenthesis there in your, in your Bibles, but this is not just a parenthetical aside in, in the scriptures. It actually carries the whole question of offense at the work of God forward. It brings it home to the heart of every man. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? John's whole purpose in coming was to prepare the way of Christ, to call for a response. And you can see that as he did, there was a split reaction. Even there in the response to John's ministry. Some heard, some heard what John said, um, and they, they declared God just. Not that they stood over God as judge, but their hearts agreed with God's judgment. When John the Baptist preached, they stood in agreement with the word of God as it came through the Lord's servant, John, and they responded in repentance. They were baptized in obedience. And their baptism their, their submission to John's baptism was like a, a solemn declaration that came out of their hearts saying, God is right. Man must repent. 
Man must turn away from their sins. And and notice who it was that did it there. Notice who it was that responded in this way. It was the people and the tax collectors too. The very ones that Christ is referring to in verse 28, those lesser ones. Isn't it interesting uh, that you have the people and the tax collectors too. So... Um, small and hated and uh, despised, a class of people were the tax collectors, that they're separated from the people. And yet these are the ones that came. These are the ones that had ears to hear and responded in faith and obedience. They responded favorably. Now, On the other side, you have the Pharisees and the lawyers. What do they do? They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They heard John's preaching, and then they looked at their lives, and they said this, I don't have anything I need to repent of. I don't have anything that I need to turn away from. They were offended. They were offended by the idea. So receiving or rejecting John's baptism was like shorthand for saying, I do or I do not need to repent. One group receives the purposes of God, the other rejects them. In one sense, you could say that the people's reaction to John the Baptist was all you really needed to know to know how they were going to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? Were they going to be prepared to receive the fullness of the gospel as it came through the Messiah, the Savior? Well, that paves the way for verse 31. Jesus uses this parable. He says this, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. This is the the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we we hear the, the expression, this generation. That is not so much a, a marker in time as it is an indication of opposition and hostility to the purposes of God. The people, Jesus says, of this generation are like children that will never be satisfied. They are childish, they're petulant, they're immature. These are very strong words. This has been called by by many as the, the parable of the brats, just to get across the tone that is being used here. They wouldn't lament with John. They refused to celebrate with Jesus. John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Neither of them play by the rules according to the religious leaders. Jesus doesn't measure up to their their expectations, no matter what they are. Yet, Christ says, wisdom is justified by all her children. What do we do when Jesus doesn't measure up to our expectations? What do we do when Jesus doesn't play by the rules, as it were? The gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to the natural man. It is not what the ears of the natural man want to hear, but it is there that the wisdom of God is made manifest. And so the question is, will we believe on him? Will we fall on our knees as those poor that he came to save, or will we reject him like the Pharisees and the lawyers? In Jesus' day, many were offended by him. Many decried him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and praise God that he was. Praise God 
that he is today, that he is a friend of sinners. That is where the children of wisdom are found, beloved, among those who acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ, those who trust and rest in him as he is offered in the gospel. He is wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate. Come to him and you will be a child of wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, because of him, that is because of God's electing sovereign grace, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So if you will be wise, you will be found in Christ Jesus. The children of wisdom are those who, are, who embrace the purposes of God, revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the ones who aren't offended by the fact that God blesses the poor, the needy, the repentant, the ones whose hearts side with the voice of wisdom that says Christ came to call not the righteous, but sinners to himself. Father in heaven, we bow our hearts before you this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel this day. Lord, I thank you for the sacred writings that are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you that Christ came and that he suffered and died and that he rose again on the third day for our redemption. Now, Lord, we pray as your people this day that you would grant us the grace to look to him in our time of need, to see ourselves as we really are, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And Lord, that we would come running to you for the pure robes of your son's righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to trust in you in times of doubt and uncertainty when we are struggling through questions and seasons of confusion. Lord, I thank you that in those times we have the Lord Jesus as the precious cornerstone that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.